welcome to Songs and Tales, a podcast where we delve too greedily and too deep into the world created by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Clara. And I'm Aaron. And we will be the Gandalfs who guide you on this journey. Here we are. Yeah, here we are. This is the first episode. Very exciting. We uh, are, we kind of know what we're doing, right? I mean, um, on paper, (laughs) we do know what we're doing. That's all that matters. In practice, we're going to see what happens. That's right. I know how to talk and you know how to talk. So like, number one, we've got that down. Got that covered. We both know how to read. Although I did briefly just forget. (laughs) (laughs) Call it nerves. Yeah, that's fine. Um, But yeah, so I guess we should start by saying a little bit about ourselves, right? Yeah, that seems natural. Do you want to start or do you want me to start? You could go ahead. I knew you were going to say that. Um, I'm Aaron. Uh, I am a recovering academic. Um, I read a lot of books. I used to write about a lot of books, talk about a lot of books, teach a lot about books, um, but now I don't anymore. So this is sort of my uh, my way back in um, in a more exciting fashion uh, and, and less, uh, less traumatizing fashion than academia. I am Clara. I am... I guess also a recovering academic, but not quite to the same extent that Aaron is. I've been out of it for quite a while, but I am the real Lord, the clinger Mm -hmm. on to Lord of the Rings of this podcast. I have been reading the books since I was like 10 years old. So whether I understood them at that age, I don't think I did. I have taught about books. I have written about books and I have read a lot of books. And I think this is going to be a great way to kind of get the gears of a literary mind churning again. Yeah, that's what I'm excited for too. Yeah, Yeah. it's going to be, it'll be really, I think, fruitful. I think we'll have a lot of fruitful discussions. Yeah, because I have not had, and I don't know if this is trivia as well, but I've not had the opportunity to really approach these books this way you know as a kid I read them and loved them around the same age as you I started I think I was 12 because the movies sort of got me started on them but I have not had the opportunity to really approach them as like literature I've always enjoyed them but I have not really kind of thought about them seriously in that way yeah I agree and I think that's kind of why I'm excited to do this podcast because I don't think many people think about them mm-hmm. that way. I remember when I was in high school, I had an English teacher and I told him I loved Lord of the Rings and he kind of scoffed. I mean, mm. he kind of wrote it off as like, well, that's not real reading. And in college, I certainly sort of, I think that was one of the only times in my life where I kind of fell away from the books because, mm-hmm. you know, I was studying English and that was very fancy and <laughs> Lord of the Rings wasn't literature. Yeah. So I wasn't as interested in reading it. And I think, I mean, even if we can like get two people in the world to think about these books as works of literary fiction, mm-hmm. as, other than just like, you know, the fantasy that they are the wonderful fantasy. That's not to mm-hmm. say that, you know, right. but, and I think fantasy in general just isn't often thought right. of as literature. They just aren't usually lumped mm-hmm. into that mm-hmm. same group. So I'm really excited. I think there's a ton to talk about. Yeah. And I think 
we're, I think we're going to go down a lot of really incredible rabbit holes and hobbit holes, maybe hobbit holes. I don't know. Um, you I know, apologize for that. We'll find where Bilbo stored all his jewels <laughs> in Bag End. I think we're just in for a lot of fun, but I do think there's a lot of serious discussion mm-hmm. to be had as well. I mean, we'll keep it light, but I don't think, I mean, you're further into this Tolkien biography that we're reading than I am, but he was, he didn't keep it light. I mean, I think, yeah, there is this impression that these books are kids' books or like young adult books, which is a way of, I think, kind of diminishing them. And and, and I think there's some pushback on that now because of how popular young adult fiction has become. And it's being recognized now, I think, as real art as well. But I think for a long time, he was kind of regarded as this, he was someone who's kind of writing down. Like, I know, like, and I know you said you weren't as far in the biography, but it is really interesting to see how his sort of colleagues at Oxford <laughs> reacted to him writing this fantasy book instead of doing his scholarship and for him I think he saw them as not separable in the same way yeah I mean I think we'll come to dig more into this Mm -hmm. you know in later episodes but I think this book like you said it was his scholarship Mm -hmm. I mean the things that he was studying and teaching are all in these books they're just wrapped in a very different package than a lot of you know I mean it's almost like you could think of he's we'll talk about this later but his interest in study of philology but it's also like anthropology I mean Mm -hmm. history Mm -hmm. he's really creating cultures and worlds but just in different ways and yeah it's a different way of understanding language and history I think than than what was commonly the approach for his colleagues you know, in academic circles. And yeah, I don't think it was necessarily appreciated or understood. And uh, we're going to try to, we're going to definitely appreciate it. We'll try to understand it. Whether we do. (laughs) Yeah, that remains to be. There's going to be a lot of Googling and Mm -hmm. you'll probably hear a lot of page flipping. If we're ever wrong or don't know something, please feel free to contact us. We're doing this not only for listeners, also for ourselves to learn. So you know, I hate when I listen to a podcast and I know that they're getting something (laughs) wrong or they don't have information and I have it and I'm just like screaming into the void. So don't scream into the void. Feel free to to reach out to us and let us know what you're thinking about what we're saying. And if we were wrong or like disastrously wrong, which is possible. It's Uh, very possible. Yeah. No, no. (laughs) No pretense here of um, being completely correct all the time. So, none. I mean, most of the time I'm not correct at all. So, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I'll get some things right. Yeah, I think a baseline of some things is what we're aiming for. So, like, I right. think we're going to be asking a lot of questions of each other. Mm-hmm. Even, I mean, I'm not. I'm not looking to have all the answers. I'm not looking to recap the books. I think. We know the stories, but we want to get to that meaty, meaty stuff that's in there because there's a lot. So we'll be kind of doing a wide ranging look at this and avoiding any kind of definitive answers, but more just kind of those questions and exploring a little bit what this book or series of books is really all about, including the Cimmerillion and the trilogy um, and some of his other writings potentially as well.
Although Tolkien did want it to be one book. So I don't yes. think he would be I don't think he would be mad about you saying this book. That's true. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll just I'm going to edit that out and just say this book, <laughs> this um, book. because of J.R.R.'s. Uh, yeah. yeah. In honor. Right. So, Aaron, you said that you started kind of reading the books. You really approached them when you were about 12. Mm-hmm. Like, what made you first pick them up? Because I don't think they are a natural choice for a 12-year-old. <laughs> probably not. And probably not in, like, the early 2000s either. I yeah, it was the Peter Jackson movie. I went and saw it in theaters, Fellowship. I, I went with no real baseline for the book. Like I knew of them, but uh, I knew very little about them. And uh, the movie just blew me away. And and I remember sitting there and like getting to the end of the movie. And like when they realize, when you realize it's like the first of three uh, being kind of like, oh my God, you're kidding. Like there's more of this movie still to happen. I thought they were going to get to the mountain and throw the ring in. So for me, it was really just kind of being opened up to this giant world of Tolkien through the film. And I immediately started reading them. I think like that, because this was, it came out right before Christmas. So I started reading them over Christmas. um, And I think I'd finished by like early spring with the trilogy so I, I read through it pretty quickly I don't know how much yeah I got from it um, I remember skipping all the poems and songs as a 12 year old um, which is something I will not do this time I no, promise I think there's a, but, a lot of things we can discuss about those poems yeah. and songs that a lot of people skip most people I talk to who you know whether they love the trilogy whether they hated the trilogy a lot of people say they skip the songs and poems a lot of people who hate the trilogy say that one of the things that turned them off was all the songs and poems mm-hmm. the other thing is usually tom bombadil so we'll, we'll talk a lot about him in a future episode i gotta but yeah say, i don't i don't red, blame red flag if you don't like tom bombadil that's yeah, a red you, flag everybody you can, you can skip that episode um <laughs> Because then you might not like us because we love Tom Bombadil. Yeah, we're Team Bombadil. Team Bombadil all the way. But you had read The Hobbit as well, correct? I actually did not come to The Hobbit until much later. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, I did not read The Hobbit until... I want to say I was in college when I got around to reading it. That's Um, wild. Yeah, I'm like Christmas breakers. Again, like these books I always seem to pick up around the holidays for for whatever reason. I think it's because they're long and it's cold out and... You have time. Yeah, I have time. And there's like a little nostalgia associated with them too now. And But yeah, so I came to The Hobbit much later. And then since then, I've probably read it more than I've read the trilogy, bizarrely enough, just because it's it's quick. It's, it's a short, fun read. And yeah, I kind of tend to pick it up when I just need to relax with a book that's like fun and not too intense. <laughs> Whereas the trilogy, I feel like, is much more intense. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Get a lot of stomach ulcers when you read the trilogy. Just stress Stressful. Out. <laughs> It's real stressful. I gotta tell you. Will they throw the ring in Mount Doom? You know, you will the eagles? Know. Will the eagles take them there? You don't know. If you're the Americans trying to make a film adaptation in the '50s, yes, <laughs> the eagles will just cut out the entirety of the plot um, to get you. Which is a there. thing I hear people say a lot. Like, why don't the eagles mm-hmm. just take them there? We will discuss why the eagles can't just take them there. Yeah. yeah. Um, it might be nothing a great... in life is easy. It might be a gray area, but there certainly has to be a reason why the Eagles can't just take them there. Yeah, so what I, about you? Yeah, I did read The Hobbit first, which I think is natural for like a nine, 10 year old. They were really 
written. Mm-hmm. Hobbit at least was written for that audience. So I read The Hobbit. I don't remember how old I was. Um, I tried figuring it out from the copy that I have, and I like scrawled my name on the inside cover based on the handwriting. I think <laughs> I was about in fourth or fifth grade uh-huh. at the time. And then I also started reading the books right after the movies, but I didn't see the movies because I was like 10 or mm-hmm. 11 and scared of everything. And I think my parents were like, you know, little Clara's not going to sleep at night if she <laughs> catches sight of a ring wraith or a Balrog. So, <laughs> but they saw the movies. And I think that was one of the reasons they were like, okay, this is a, certainly a book that Clara could like read and understand and would like, not that they filtered what I was reading, but I think when I told them that I wanted to read it, they were like, okay, like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it might be a little above your reading level, but it's not, there's not going to be content that isn't suitable for it, like a 10 or 11 year old. And then I read the books very slowly at first. I remember reading them each year I would read one. So mm, like mm-hmm. the like in fifth grade, I believe I read The Fellowship. And then in sixth grade, I read The Two Towers. And then in seventh grade, I read Turn of the King. But then after that, I would reread the trilogy pretty much every single summer until I got to college. So all three books during the summer. So I was kind of opposite. You would read them over Christmas. And yeah. I was like, this is my summer reading. I think all told now I've read each of the books about eight times this is not to say I am an expert I just have read them a lot and I love them deeply yeah they've just I think they just they're comforting I don't know yeah Yeah. there's just something comforting about them even Mm -hmm. though I'm rereading them there's always seems to be like more to discover and now I've read the Silmarillion a couple times as well so I mean I'm not gonna say I understand everything that (laughs) happens in the Silmarillion but just having like some background knowledge and listening to other podcasts Mm -hmm. and you know other I don't know media that either is informed by Lord of the Rings I just glean more from them every time I read them. Yeah, that's that's what I'm excited about the Silmarillion because I have only dipped my toe into that book and then quickly pulled it back out again. Um, I don't blame you. It is not easy to get into. There are parts of it where once you like start reading it, you're like, okay, Mm -hmm. I'm in it. I like this story. I enjoy what's going on. And then you're like, you get kind of shoved back out of it again when Tolkien is like, okay, now I'm going to talk for seven pages about who's related to whom. And they all have the same (laughs) Same name, name. (laughs) effectively. I think I've described it as it is kind of like reading a religious text. Mm -hmm. Like you have some chapters that are really interesting and draw you in. And then you have some that just are not. (laughs) Yeah. But they're, they're really important. Mm-hmm. so i'm excited i'm excited to read the silmarillion again i'm excited to actually discuss it with someone yeah i think it's a book that benefits discussion for sure 
I have a lot of questions about mm-hmm. it. I mean, there's stuff about it that I'm, I've always been kind of like, what the heck is that? <laughs> and I think it'll be nice to be able to bounce questions <laughs> off of you and off of Google when neither of us understand. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I am looking forward to having someone to talk with about it because I do think it's it's very easy to get kind of lost in that book and and sort of yeah either glaze over or kind of give up on it um, because it feels like work it, it in a way that the the trilogy does not to me right it well it's not like work much of it is not narrative which I think right. is so hard right and you go into it I think at least I did I don't remember when I first read it I do think I was in college when mm-hmm. I actually picked up the Silmarillion the first time but I certainly went into it thinking this is going to be just kind of a narrative history of things before Lord yeah. of the Rings. Yeah. And it's not, Mm-mm. it is and it isn't. It certainly doesn't start out that way. <laughs> but I think, I, I think it's going to be interesting too. I've never read them kind of in succession. I've always right. sort of read the Silmarillion separately and then, you know, six months seven months eight months later whatever a year read the trilogy so I also have never had that um, content fresh in my mind while I'm reading so I think it'll be interesting to see what connections I can draw and we can draw from just like reading them all back to back yeah because they play such a huge role and the children I'm learning now from some other podcasts I've been listening to that I just really didn't appreciate. Yeah, enough. me either. And like even the movies have mentioned it. I was kind of surprised by the films actually mentioned some of that, that background as well. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to avoid. I think, you know, Tolkien is building his mythology and, you know, he gives everything meaning. Even the movies can't, help but have some of that built into them because if they didn't they wouldn't be lord of the rings it's like if does that make sense like you just can't once it's like once the cake is made you can't separate the ingredients again and that's sort of how that feels to me is like if you took that out it's just not the same story because Mm -hmm. it goes so deep too greedily too (laughs) deep and it's such a part of his thinking too yeah i mean about everything he's doing as you mentioned with language and yeah i mean tolkien may have been an overthinker but i think we certainly (laughs) benefited i mean really that's Mm -hmm. kind of right he just like is overthinking his own works i mean even think about the silmarillion was published after the hobbit and the trilogy because he was just still thinking about his works and i think that's an interesting thing too that we'll end up discussing is like how maybe there are some some things that don't quite shake out right right? i mean if you're writing the material and then later write the source material (laughs) i think there are some little like like huh Hmm? Hmm? that's Hmm? kind of vague it's a wreck on yeah (laughs) yeah it doesn't mesh with 
what's going on. And, and I think this is a good point to mention too, how we're not going to really be focusing on the Hobbit. Yes, kind of for those for reasons. that reason. Yeah. yeah, I think we'd love to do maybe an episode on Hobbits mm. and the Hobbit. But yeah, not really a deep, deep dive. Yeah, because it's just it is a kind of an odd outlier in a lot of ways in terms of his mythology. And like even the ring doesn't really have the same sort of uh, weight that it does in the subsequent books. Yeah, I mean, it's not an all-powerful evil thing no. it's just like something magic slips on and goes invisible when he <laughs> needs to speak with a dragon right as you um, do and i think the tone is just so different mm-hmm. as well i yeah it just doesn't jive yeah it doesn't yeah. jive with the <laughs> with the rest of the the books that we're going to be reading and that's not to say it doesn't have value right but i think if we were to like really include the hobbit in this we would spend a lot of time saying now in the hobbit right. this is like this is what elves are well they're very different than the elves in the rest of the lord of the rings and the silmarillion which tolkien eventually explains but Again, it just is, it's maybe not worth it to spend our time pointing out how things are different in The Hobbit and then how they kind of morph and change in The Fellowship, The Two Towers, The Return of the King, and The Silmarillion. Absolutely. Spending too much time being like, this is why Hobbits are X in this book and why they're not in this trilogy would not necessarily be the most useful (laughs) discussion and... um, and I think, yeah, as you said, like, there's a lot of worth in those. Like, I love The Hobbit, but it just doesn't really, I don't think really benefits what we're hoping to do here in terms of thinking about the trilogy in the Cimmerillion is kind of part of a, a larger cosmology, I guess, of thinking mm-hmm. and of storytelling. Yeah, and kind of fitting into a literary tradition, which mm-hmm. is something we're going to try to look look at is where where does Tolkien fit among his contemporaries? Mm-hmm. Again, he wasn't just living in a void. <laughs> Although he liked to, he would have loved. Was. Yeah, yeah. He would have loved to live in a void, mm-hmm. a tree-filled void. Uh, I guess that makes <laughs> it not a void. Trees and words, just trees and words, and nothing. All else. he wants. Yeah. Um, but I think again, the Hobbit just doesn't offer the same kind of, I don't know, richness. Mm-hmm in that study as don't add us if you don't like that opinion it's what we're sticking it's what we're sticking to yeah um like we said we might discuss it but not kind of as Mm -hmm. in-depth as the rest yeah we don't really have it we both devoted to it yeah we've both read the hobbit we both have copies of it if we have to reference it at any point we will i'm sure i will i've always had issues with like where are the people in the hobbit during the events of the main trilogy mm-hmm. is something that I would love to talk about at some point. But yeah, we just won't be spending a ton of time on it, which we think is fine. Yeah. And if you don't think that, uh, don't too add bad, us. Too bad. Yeah, just too bad. So do you want to start off with what you were reading or do you want me to? Sure, I can kick it off. I okay. have. And part of 
part, part of me is reluctant to discuss this because I don't want it to be a spoiler. But again, I think we're assuming people yeah. approaching this podcast have an understanding of or have read Lord of the yeah. Rings. If you haven't, go read it and, and maybe yeah, listen to it. I think <laughs> if you haven't read, we're going to be discussing things kind of in sequentially and mm-hmm. I don't want to ruin anything. Mm-hmm. But so this is from the Carpenter biography that we're reading to kind of just give us a background on Tolkien um, because his background obviously plays a big part in so the way he approached certain aspects of his work and also I don't I think Aaron and I both the way we studied English literature kind of we never really can separate the artist from the art Mm -hmm way you have to understand the person who's writing it so we're both reading this this biography by Humphrey Carpenter and this is at the very beginning but it got my little wheels turning so I'll read the passage so it says occasionally a strange dream came to trouble him a great wave towering up and advancing ineluctably wow that's a word I can't pronounce I'm gonna go back hold on let me look at (laughs) ineluctably holy cow what Mm. did I even mean okay I'm gonna start again because I can't say that word occasionally a strange dream came to trouble him a great wave towering up and advancing inequitably (laughs) just just to just substitute inescapably okay (laughs) thank you Occasionally, a strange dream came to trouble him, a great wave towering up and advancing inescapably over the trees and green fields, poised to engulf him and all around him. The dream was to reoccur for many years. Later, he came to think of it as my Atlantis complex. And I think this is so interesting because Atlantis, first of all, there's like a lot of Atlantean kind of imagery in the Silmarillion that we will definitely be needing to discuss so like he was and he was having this dream this is the very very early years of his life he was like a nine ten year old kid and he's having this dream and it's informing these works he's writing years later the second thing that really struck me about this is like Faramir has this vision like he like has this dream And actually, I was listening to another Lord of the Rings podcast earlier today, and they talked about how really if Tolkien saw himself as a character in Lord of the Rings, it was Faramir, even though he didn't really like the character of Faramir very much. That's just kind of how organically his characters developed for him was like, here's a character I don't like, but oh wow he's kind of like me (laughs) so much so that he gave him this same dream and it's also I mean it's just the fall of Numenor and I don't know I just think that's so incredible that as a nine ten year old boy he was having this dream this reoccurring dream that he later worked into his books in multiple ways And I'm very curious to kind of almost count. I want to see like how many times we get sort of these like Atlantis references or the, you know, engulfing inescapable wave throughout. And I just think 
this kind of speaks to this whole early section of this biography and how much his experiences as a very young boy were already starting to shape this world that he was going to later build, which like, I think about that as like an eight, nine, 10 year old. What was I doing? Like nothing reading Lord of the Rings, I guess. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, he's already building up a store of memories to create the Shire and create characters and name characters and have these huge you know symbols within his own work that are coming out of his own life and I just think that alone is is incredible and just shows the depth of of what he was creating yeah for like you know as young kids often do that kind of imaginative work but like for him there's a yeah degree of depth and consistency that I think is remarkable that these images stick with him and that he comes back to them and he sort of creates this this whole world that is not always not always consistent but is remarkably consistent when you're thinking about someone who's a young either kid or young adult right because he carries this through to his, his teenage years as well the sort of imagining and invention of languages and invention of history and yeah, it's, I remember that from the Carpenter biography as well, being interested in that image. Yeah, that just really struck me kind of as like a, a perfect example of the way that his early life was really influ influential for, you know, these later works. I mean, we know his whole life, really, which is so interesting because I feel like he tried really hard to kind of say like, no, it's not, it's not about me. It's about this mythology I've created but again you can't separate his art from him as much as I think he would have liked you yeah. to <laughs> yes and I think even he sometimes is aware of the limitations of that like his his sort of reactions to allegory which I don't know if you've gotten to that part of the biography yet but not yet okay yeah so keep an eye out for that but the short answer is Tolkien says he despises allegory since he doesn't like allegorical storytelling is the book to be considered as an allegory no i just like allegory whenever i smell it but of course he's written some allegories in some of his shorter works and, and of course there's allegorical elements i think to his his trilogy as well and so the lady doth protest too much <laughs> at times but but I, I think it's worth thinking about sort of his own view though right like we have to balance sort of his own perception of of his relationship to his work with what we also know about his biography and, and kind of balance that assessment a little bit to say, well, yes, he wanted to keep himself separate from his art, but there's ways in which, of course, as you said, like the contemporary world and his experience is always going to intrude in that. The big one is his war experience, which has been, mm -hmm. I think, covered quite extensively. Um, but I think there's other things going on too that we'll talk about. Um, as Clara, you mentioned earlier, his relationship to contemporary writers and contemporary art. Um, a relationship that I think was a fraught one for him. Uh, he was not overly fond of a lot of his contemporary, like he just didn't read it. He's claimed mm -hmm. to not read it. I think sometimes he claimed not to read more than he actually did. You know, he actually did read contemporary work. But um, I can give you a kind of guarantee. I mean, Keats was not a contemporary, <laughs> but I know in our early kind mm -hmm. of discussions, we talked about Keats. He makes a reference in the biography there's like a, a direct reference to Keats he talks about reading Joseph Wright's primer of the gothic language 
And it says Tolkien opened it and immediately experienced a sensation at least as full of delight as first looking into Chapman's Homer, which is Keats. So unless Tolkien was having the exact same reaction to Chapman's Homer as Keats was, I doubt he was. So again, he can say all he wants, you know, oh, no, 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 it's not these things. But I think, you know, yeah we bring our own experience to anything. And I do think he kind of, he enjoyed making myth. And I think he liked making myth about himself. I mean, he really did want to kind of be this figure who was kind of solitary and maybe a bit odd. Yeah. Just have a kind of romantic vision of the artist as the solitary creator or sub-creator, I think is the term. He yeah. uses right that there's God, of course, and then there's humans are, are sub creators within that sort of universe. And, and there's a, you know, the imaginative for him is it intrudes into the real, I think, in interesting ways that we, we will probably talk about as well. It's like how much of this is imaginary for him and how much of it is real and what is sort of the division for him versus maybe what we commonly conceive of as the division between imagined real worlds or fictional and real worlds. And, and I think for Tolkien, that line is blurry in a lot of I ways, uh, which maybe explains his distaste for allegory in some ways too. Is Maybe. You know, he's saying he was... it's too separate. And sure. I, think, I, I don't know. That's just something I've been thinking about. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's going to be great. So yeah. what was the, what was your like the best thing you read in the last couple weeks? Yeah. I've been reading the road to middle earth, the Tom Shippey kind of, a, I guess it's, it's sort of like a critical collection of critical essays he has a critical biography too that i have not read which my understanding is there's quite a bit of overlap between the two but this is basically his assessment of tolkien's work beginning with the hobbit and running through the Cimmerillion and some of the stuff that was published later by christopher um, his son right and i found it really interesting because he goes a lot into the philology which is something i know very little about i kind of know of it yeah um, i you know but i i don't know really a lot of the sort of I guess, for lack of a better word, theoretical underpinnings of, of philology as a study. So he really dives into that and explains sort of how language is, is really central to what Tolkien's project is and how informed um, his, really his whole legendary creation is by this idea of language and rooted in language and kind of a, a search for a return to an English language. Um, so there's a lot of historical context here too, thinking about Tolkien's relationship to medieval literature uh, and kind of what he was hoping to recover um, in terms of kind of getting to like a pre, pre-Norman conquest England. Like these are our stories. They're much closer to like the Norse mythology than the mm-hmm. sort of post-Norman conquest uh, mythologies of like Arthur, for example. Like the Arthurian legends to, to Tolkien are not as true as something like Beowulf mm-hmm. um, or as, you know, even Gawain and the Green Knight, right? As he's saying, these are more true to something British or English. So there is this kind of national concept at work here that's a little bit I think we will have to kind of parse as well like what is he talking about when he talks about things like culture and nation is it really in a modern sense or is it something a little bit different and and I think that book was really helpful for me to kind of think about those questions of like what is what is Tolkien's relationship to England as a place Mm -hmm. you know is it a political entity or is it something else And I think it's definitely something else interesting for him yeah it's it's a history it's a language it's not it's not Magna Carta, I guess. Yeah, you know? yeah. So like for Tolkien, it's almost like England 
Englishness can be removed from England because like these kind of English elements that were important to him weren't bound by, you know, land, Mm -hmm. which I think is something that I think that's very modern. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. that's a very modern thinking of like language is really what makes a culture. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really interesting book. It's called Light at the Edge of the World. It's about vanishing cultures. Has nothing to do with Lord (laughs) of the Rings, but it's about how when a indigenous culture loses its language, Mm -hmm. it loses a huge part of who and what it is. And I think Tolkien is thinking in the same way. Um, Obviously, the English language is far from being lost, but kind of that same sense of like your identity is bound to what you know, mm-hmm. your mother tongue you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah he saw it as being diminished i think you know that yes the english language was in some ways dominant but it was an english language that to him was not corrupted but it wasn't it's sort of there's sort of like an er english in the background yeah well like you said pre-conquest right Mm -hmm. old english Mm -hmm. would have been his like ultimate language because it didn't have the romance language influencing it they talk in the there's like the teacher that he had muck and manure so yes muck would have been from the old English Anglo-Saxon and then manure would have been from the French and so muck would be the superior word here which is so funny because you don't think of those types of words as being superior Um, yeah right I had a well we both had an English professor who basically said if you say a word in English and it sounds really beautiful and nice like manure it's probably from (laughs) the French if you say a word and it sounds like gross or is like a syllable like muck, it's probably from <laughs> old English. So yeah, I think that's I think that's just, you know, we talk about Tolkien being maybe more modern than he mm-hmm. even thought. Mm-hmm. I think this is one way for sure that he was maybe thinking a little bit ahead of his time, even mm-hmm. if he was looking at the English language as like, well not as good as it used to be he yeah. still was i think thinking in a very nuanced way that you know seems potentially natural to us now but right. i don't know that it was in you know mm-hmm. 19 you know 35 right whenever right. he was kind of starting to form these thoughts and ideas yeah he it is interesting his sort of relationship to this, his contemporary moderns and their approach to language too because there's similarities but i think he is doing something distinctly different in terms of you know they're focused on sort of the unreliability of of linguistic meaning right that you can't always convey through language the truth of experience whereas i think tolkien believes quite the opposite that you can mm-hmm. get to truth but for him it's the matter of sort of choosing the right language to get there and and the difficulties of returning to that language right. that has been like buried under uh you know manure um the manure of the french and the latin yeah yeah he wants to get back to the muck and, and so that's it's it's a different kind of challenge than i think what the other moderns were setting for themselves which is a sort of stripping down to try to get at some kind of kernel um he's saying 
he's approaching it, but but in a slightly different way and saying there is truth to be found in language. It's just you have to right. find the right language. Right. It's like he knows what the kernel is. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Right. <laughs> he thinks he knows what that kernel right. is, but maybe can't quite get to it because right. of, I mean, you read Lord of the Rings, it's not like they're all written in any only English vernacular right. that comes from, you know, the Anglo-Saxon. But yeah, that's, I think, I think kind of Tolkien really didn't think of himself. I wouldn't say as like a, as a quote, modern person, but I actually right. think he had a lot of sensibilities that would have, if you plopped him down in, you know, 2021, I think he would have found a lot that he was like, oh, okay, this is maybe better than I thought. Although maybe not. He was quite the pessimist. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think in certain ways he would have been distraught to see some of the things he was concerned about in the 30s and the 40s kind of continuing yeah. in terms of, I don't know, he probably haven't gotten to the part in the biography either where he's like just mad about cars. No. Although, okay. No. <laughs> well, there you go. He's like, he doesn't like trains. And then you, so you can imagine when cars show up. Cars are really yeah. bad. Maybe not plop him down in 2021. Maybe if someone from 2021 actually, and that's what we're going to do, mm-hmm. looks at his sensibilities, yeah. we will realize he was a bit more yes. modern than yeah. modern in both a literary and just kind of in the traditional sense of mm-hmm. modern. He had, I think, he was more forward thinking than I yes. think most people who just see him as a conservative Catholic writer tend to think right. of him. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's ways in which he is problematizing things that we are still thinking Absolutely. about today. Um, the obvious one, obvious one being environment and sort of what mm-hmm. effect we have on nature. But I think there's other things too, like our relationship to technology is runs rampant throughout these books. I mean, they mm-hmm. are absolutely fantasy texts, but they're very much in touch with. They say a lot about what's going on Mm -hmm. in the wider world. Yeah. Yeah. And beyond, I think just the common reading, which is his war experience, right? Like Mm -hmm. I I don't want to diminish that is a big part of what's going on. Right. Because it is. I mean, it definitely influenced how he wrote his battle scenes and how he kind of didn't glorify war, but the book is about much more than that. Mm -hmm. And so is Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, he has a much, I think, longer view of history than sometimes he's given credit for. And this idea mm-hmm. that, you know, World War One is just part of a cycle of human suffering, for lack of a better word. Uh, for him. Know, yeah, it's like this, this sort of this, this veil of tears, right? This idea that we're kind of continually being confronted, which is a very theological perspective, yes, too. Right? Yeah, you know, which this, this idea you also can't with. avoid, I think. Right, right. You know we don't want to approach these works we've talked about this as just like i don't know aggressively theological but Mm -hmm. again it was a part of tolkien so i do think it's a part of the books yeah and not just his catholic theology i mean there's more than just catholicism Mm -hmm. packed Mm -hmm. packed into these (laughs) which we will come to discover yeah Right. And, and I think too, and it's similar to the other ways you've talked about how Tolkien is sometimes surprising. I think his theology is not easy to pin down either. No, I agree with that. In ways that are really fascinating. Again, kind of like 
you know, I always, maybe I should find something like what did Tolkien and Graham Greene think of each other? <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. You've got two Catholic British kind of curmudgeons. Yeah. Uh, yep. Writing around similar times. I, I'm, I'm going to have to look into this because it seems like they should have appreciated each other, but based on who they were as people, maybe didn't. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, I do wonder about that. Because I was thinking about Elliot as well. Sure. He's a little earlier, but similarly curmudgeonly. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, you know, thinking theologically in addition to artistically and, and sort of the overlap there. And, and conservative, but I think in a slightly different way. Um, yeah, I think anytime we talk about conservative, we always have to, in the, in the context of this podcast, yes. think of it differently. Yeah. Because it's not conservative like we... Mm-hmm. you know 21st century readers right. um would consider conservatism is very right. different uh, but yeah i think that'd be great to think about graham greenies i hadn't thought about him uh in that because they're actually closer contemporaries i think than elliot in some way yes. a little bit older yeah and elliot was really i mean he was working mostly in the poetic form mm-hmm. which i don't think means that they can't right be looked at together Tolkien wrote as we noted a lot of poetry well I skipped those as a child so. I did not uh, <laughs> oh okay well you were the good reader and you will not skip them now as an adult no, no I will read them um but I think that they were writing they were both Graham Greene and Tolkien mm-hmm. a rhyme that I did not intend um you know they're both writing novels Mm-hmm. and they both I think their theology like you said like Tolkien's Catholicism I don't think was exactly as like I don't know staunchly by the books as we yeah. may it's like orthodox it. in a different way if that yes. makes sense yeah and Graham Greene certainly was no orthodox Mm-mm. Catholic so no. I'm, I'll do some digging on that yeah. for the next episode at yeah, least what they yeah. what they thought of each other and we know mm-hmm. graham green had very loud opinions on <laughs> certain people so yes. it would be shocking if he didn't have something to say about tolkien mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right no that is interesting because so often it's it's c.s lewis and and tolkien that are kind of put side by side and compared yeah and, and understandably because they were very close contact contemporaries but i think sure. yeah there's something to be said for kind of widening that net which is what i think we're hoping to do and yeah and even i mean you know tolkien and c.s lewis were kind of palling around early right. in their careers but there really was quite a rift mm-hmm. that developed between them or at least between them artistically yes later and i think people still just kind of think of them as like oh and maybe that's why people don't approach lord of the rings in quite or maybe that's maybe that's why they approach Lord of the Rings the way they do, just saying like, oh, it's just fantasy. Oh, it's just a, you know, allegory because they have read The mm-hmm. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They've read, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, and they're expecting it to be like something C.S. Lewis would have turned out, which really slaps you in the face. Yes, <laughs> very aggressive Christian allegory. Yeah, which I don't think Tolkien is i mean i don't mm-hmm. think he is at all i think that's one way where like okay there's elements but i don't yes yeah. i don't think it's like 
I never looked at Gandalf as a Jesus a Christ no, figure. Right. 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 <laughs> and Tolkien doesn't want us, you know, he doesn't, he wants to, he's trying to, uh, in a lot of ways, de Christianize the myth that he's creating because mm-hmm. he wants it to be in some ways older. Yes. Like so. your Beowulfs and mm-hmm. like pre Christianity. So anything that does kind of filter in is perhaps less deliberate. Mm-hmm. Then something like C.S. Lewis, where it is very much like, this is, yeah, this lion is Jesus. <laughs> uh, we don't Susan have Susan goes to hell. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because she was too pretty. You know, I've heard that can happen. We've all read Dante. That's right. All the beautiful people in hell. All the yeah. beautiful people on the third ring of hell. <laughs> Their punishment is no mirrors brutal yeah so i think we have a lot to think about and t- clearly a lot to think about and talk yeah. about and i'm really excited to kind of get get into the meat of of the books but we have yeah. a little bit we're going to do before that some biography discussions and some contemporary conversations about his his relationship to other authors and then yeah i'm excited to get into cimmerillion and have you tell me what it's about because i Please I don't. got nothing. I got nothing. I, I I read. I read. I think like I found my copy with the bookmark on like page ten, and I cool. think that's as far as I got uh, as a college sophomore. Whenever it was, I read it. Well, don't expect me to know everything. <laughs> I expect you to know everything. Listener, my co-host may expect me to know everything. Please don't expect me to know everything. But I'm excited to read the Silmarillion with you. Like I said, I'm excited to have someone to discuss it with. And I'm really excited about our discussion next week, kind of sitting Tolkien amongst his fellows and looking at how he fits in, even though he didn't really want to fit in. Yeah, definitely did not want to fit in. He was very much trying to be an iconoclast. I mean, he really was like one of those people that was like, I'm going to, I'm a, I'm just an introvert. I'm just an introvert. You know, uh, I don't, um, you know, people think I'm weird. Kind of creating a story about himself. Yes. Yeah. Really? (laughs) Yeah. He is definitely someone who has a very, and I don't mean this to sound like mean, but he's a very created persona. Oh, absolutely. That I think even Carpenter indirectly suggests as created like with his conversation with him i think that's how the book starts right he meets with him and yes yeah and he you know, he says he's friendly but he's kind of difficult to keep up with because he's always thinking about things and kind of going off in different directions like he's yes. just this brain that's that's always firing um but and he's not like this, only like, and like only ever talking about yes his like world that he's built yes like right he he certainly couldn't have done that for his whole life with everyone he met. Yeah, right. But right. certainly with a biographer or a critic, he could build that persona. So yeah. maybe we can look into that a little bit too next yeah. week. Kind of yeah. the... This is self-created image yeah. of Tolkien and maybe how it changes too. Yeah. But... And then what do we like know about him that maybe doesn't fit into that box that he... <laughs> Yeah, but he's so for himself. deliberately built. Yeah. Can I just say, this is somewhat of an aside. When I read the, the biography where he goes to visit him and like he says his office is in the garage and all of his books are in there, like I immediately like was like, what? You can't put your books in the garage. They're going to be all I know. like, the humidity is going to destroy. I was very stressed by that. 
Well, I think of a garage also as like a very non-secure part of your home. <laughs> so you were you were like these poor books in the yeah. humidity, and then me like someone will steal them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a college professor who kept his books, kept some of his books in his garage, and they were just like ruined. Well, yeah, like, very clearly ruined. And I'm thinking this man who's built his entire life around these like collection of manuscripts that he's been writing is working in this garage. <laughs> Yeah, and in England, it's damp. It's a damp climate. Yeah, I don't know. It stressed me out. It just really (laughs) stressed me out for a very different reason. Yeah, yeah. You were like, what is someone's gonna steal his stuff? And and I'm like, the world is gonna destroy his his materials. So Aaron and I think about things very differently. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, unless you think we have the exact same approach to things. Um, our anxieties are very different. Very different. Yeah, if not our thinking. But that is what will make this a very fruitful and rich podcast. <laughs> Our anxious journey through Lord of the Rings. Uh, yes, no, I'm, I'm really excited. I think it'll be a lot of fun. I agree. So next time we'll be talking about Tolkien and his not really friends. <laughs> and a little bit about his approach to philology and the importance mm-hmm. of that to his entire world, really and hopefully just getting some of this pre-discussion out of the way because it'll inform Mm -hmm. the rest of our conversations and then we will be diving into the Silmarillion we will not be dipping our toes and diving we will be cannonballing (laughs) into the Silmarillion (laughs) making the biggest splash possible yeah I like that all right I can, You're I can all going to get that. drenched with the Silmarillion. <laughs> oh, pool <I> water. <laughs> That's right. All right. Until next time. Adios. Songs and Tales, a literary guide to Middle Earth, is produced by Clara McHugh and Aaron Babcock. Intro and outro music is by Joe McHugh. The podcast's artwork is by Jenny Calais. You can find us on Twitter at Songs and Tales Pod, on Instagram at Songs and Tales Pod, and you can email us at, you guessed it, Songs and Tales Pod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. I also am kind of like weirdly congested, so hopefully that doesn't come through. Not even congested, just like. Mucusy.